The sermon which you are about to hear is by Pastor Chris Mitchell with Pleasant Grove Baptist Church, located in Wrightsville, Georgia. If you would like to contact us, please visit us on our Facebook page at Pleasant Grove 319. That's on Facebook at Pleasant Grove 319. Our desire is to connect you with the one true living God by encountering God every day, verse by verse. And now, here's Pleasant Grove's pastor, Chris Mitchell. The message this morning is Pergamos, the worldly church. Pergamos, the worldly church. What does the term worldly or worldliness mean? Well, some see it as that's just an old-fashioned term. It's something that describes, well, you're boring or conservative. Some may even associate it with prohibition against dancing, movies, music, or entertainment. If you remember the 1980s film with Kevin Bacon, Footloose, remember it was based off a true story of a town, how a whole town got around and said, look, you shouldn't dance because it's seen as worldly. And poetically, Kevin Bacon points out in the Bible, David danced naked before the Lord, before the Ark of the Covenant. Some can take it a little too far what worldliness means, but those are the ones that take it too far. Maybe you should wear a dress or things shouldn't be seen or you shouldn't do this. I even heard a woman one time say that color in magazines is evil and wicked, so we should stay with black and white. Some can take it a little bit too far, but also some can take it maybe not so with severity. Maybe compromisations begin like the children of Israel within the church, and that is what we see here with the Pergamist church. I am not saying that we shouldn't have fun, that we shouldn't enjoy life, and we shouldn't enjoy things that God has given us, but there is a line that must be drawn And if you don't know how to distinguish between the lines, you're going to make two mistakes. You're either going to be over-compromisation, where you're going to overcompensate, meaning you're going to try to do, you know, don't do anything, and it's worldly. Or you might under-appreciate and say, well, you know, anything goes because we have the liberty now. We have freedom in Christ. And many will quote Galatians and say that, you know, there's neither nor Jew nor Gentile or male or female. So we have this new liberty in Christ. Unfortunately, that's the wrong perspective as well. So we're going to look at this morning and we're going to look at the Pergamos church specifically. And we're going to see what does the Bible mean when it says worldliness, when it says worldly, that we as Christians shouldn't live in this manner. Why is that important? Well, let's begin with the first word church. The word church, ecclesia, in the Greek means called out ones. It's not referring to a building. It's referring to a body of people, those who are saved by the grace of God, those who've repented and put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the church. And the word church means called out. Another term that we can use about the church is sanctification. Sanctification comes from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. Holy means to be separate. It means to be set apart. It means to be different. The Bible says that we are aliens in this life because this is not our home. In other words, as Christians, we are different from the world. And the Bible tells us that we shouldn't act or think or live like the world. And the Pergamos Church is a great example of how a church, a body of believers, compromise by living like the world. So what does the Bible have to say concerning the word worldliness or worldly? 1 John 2:15 through 17 says this, "Do not love the world or the things in the world." If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Simply put, the Apostle John, who also wrote the book of Revelation here, is writing to these churches 
And he is specifically saying in 1 John, his letter to those churches at that time, do not love the things in the world. Why? Because the things in the world are temporal. They pass. They will not remain or last forever. So yes, we can enjoy television, enjoy shows and TV, but it's not going to last forever. And therefore, it should not have an influence or a prominent uh, place in our life. I've heard a pastor put it this way. TV stands for time vacuum because it would absolutely suck out all of your time. And it will. And all of us are susceptible to it because we'll find one show or the other that we may like that's palatable to our liking or our desires. The point is not the sermon is not against television. Okay, the point is this. There are things in the world that will consume our thought and our decisions and our life and will put us off track of what God wants us to do. Listen to what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed. In other words, don't be molded into the way the world operates. But be transformed. Greek word metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis is that stage in which the caterpillar goes into his puma, as they call it, or pupa, and in that little cocoon stage turns out to be a butterfly. A Christian is not the dead man, the caterpillar, as Paul is saying so eloquently in Romans chapter 12, but we are the butterfly. We are literally transformed from the world. That's why we're born again. That's why we have a renewing of our mind. That's why we are sanctified and set apart. We're not thinking or acting like the world. Again, we see in Colossians 2.8, Paul again warns the church, Beware lest anyone cheat you or rob you, as some translations say, through philosophy. The word philosophy here is anything that is teachable or wisdom and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according, here it is, to the basic principles or rudiments of the world and not according to Christ. Paul is warning the church in Colossae simply saying, don't let anyone deceit you or rob you with traditions of men or philosophies, meaning the teachings of the world. What Paul is warning is that the world has a way in which it operates and the word, meaning the word of God, has a way in which you should operate. Let me give you a for instance. The world says love is a feeling. The word says love is an action. Simply put, it doesn't matter how you feel towards an individual. Christ says you love those who persecute you because a new commandment I have given to you that you love one another because they shall know that you love one another. Why? Because that you love one another. They shall know that you are loved. They shall know you are my disciples. That's what he says in John chapter 13. Love is an action, meaning it doesn't matter how you feel towards the individual. Christ demonstrated his love in that he died for us. He did it through action. The world will say marriage is between anyone you desire. The word says marriage is between one man and one woman. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? The world teaches a certain way how you should operate, but the word expects you as a Christian, this is how you should live. In other words, the Bible is our manual for life and how we should conduct, behave, and how we should act and how we should talk, how we conduct ourselves with other people and conduct ourselves within the world. That's what the Bible teaches. Also, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this world and Ephesians 2, 2 says that we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In other words... How the world is operating is it has someone pulling the strings, and that is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is the God of this world. Why? So that he can blind men from the truth. 
In Ephesians 2, 2, it says he's the prince of the power of the air, meaning he is the one that is putting and propagating all messages, all ideas, all philosophies in the world. In other words, every other religion is false religion. It's cultish and it is satanic. Buddhism is satanic. Allah is satanic. The Muslim religion, Islam, it's satanic. Why? Because Satan is behind it. He's the one that's pulling the strings. He's the one that's getting people to believe in demonic opposition. And because of that, it is the world system. The world system says there's many ways to heaven. But the word says there's only one way through Jesus Christ. And there is a plethora of scriptures that teach that. So you understand what I'm, what I'm getting at here? There's the world's way, and then there's the word's way, the word of God. Okay, It's important because when we look at this church in Pergamos, it's important that we understand that, that we can make that distinction. In no way am I saying that we cannot enjoy this life as Christians. We're not party poopers, and we can't be dull conservatives where we can't have fun. That's not what I'm saying. It's not saying you can't go out and enjoy the skating rink or enjoy food or enjoy life or enjoy your family and friends or that we can't give gifts at Christmas. That's not what I'm getting at. So what does it mean to be worldly? Well, simply put, looking at all the scriptures that we looked at this morning that, I've, that we looked at before we get into the text is this. I can bring it down in one word. Influence. Influence. In other words, what is influencing you today that will affect your tomorrow? What is influencing you today? Helping you to make the decisions for tomorrow. Therefore, worldliness or to be worldly is anything temporal that takes a priority or a prominent position in your life over what is eternal and everlasting. In other words, what is dominating your time in this life that is temporal that you could do without because it is eroding or eradicating and taking away what is everlasting. And Satan is good about that. You see, Satan can't not, he can't curse the church. That's the point I want you to get this morning. Satan cannot attack the church by cursing it. He can't take your name out of the Lamb's book of life. You're a child of God. You're set apart. But what he can do is corrupt it. How does he corrupt it? By allowing sin to be a temptation in your life. You eat and follow that temptation, which becomes sin, and it becomes a stronghold in your life. And it corrupts the church. You see, bread first begins with breadcrumbs. You got to have the crumbs in order to produce the product. And Satan knows that a little tiny crack at the foundation of your faith can ruin the whole thing. So that's very important. That's what I want us to grasp this morning. So we're going to ask this question and we're going to go through this like we've gone through the other churches. We're going to ask the question, what is Christ saying to the church of Pergamos? And more specifically, what is he saying to his church today? And how is the church of Pergamos an example in which we should avoid? Now, there are some good examples and there's some bad examples. So let's take the good and the bad and let's look at it. So the first thing we need to understand about Pergamos is point number one, the church. The church in and of itself. Where is it located? Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. Clayton, if you would, pull up that PowerPoint, that first screen there. And this is just an aerial view to kind of give us an understanding of a map of these seven churches. We see off the coast there in the Aegean Sea is a little tiny island called Patmos. And if you go inward to where it says Asia Minor, you will see going in counterclockwise there, okay, or clockwise, you will see Ephesus, Smyrna. So we've already covered those two churches. And if you go north about 150 miles from Ephesus, you'll find Pergamum or Pergamus right there at the very top. You can clearly see that. So this is kind of giving you an idea where this is located. It's not a, 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 
a coastal port or doesn't have anything like that, like Smyrna, Ephesus. So there weren't any trade routes or anything important like that. But it was a beautiful and magnificent city in such a way that there was a lot of people that were dwelling there. Christ commissions John to write to these seven churches, and this is the third out of the seven churches in which he is to write. We clearly see that within the first chapter. This city is the third city on the postal route, as you can clearly see that on the screen. It is about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It is the capital city, matter of fact, of Asia Minor. So out of all those cities, it is the capital uh, that we see there. And it still exists today. It is known as the Turkish city Bergama. Pergamus also had the second largest, this is what Pergamus was known for. It had the second largest library at that time in the world, right next to Alexandria, which was in Egypt, which had the largest. It had over 200,000 handwritten letters in that library in which people could read. These were called parchments or taken from animal skin that will dry out because guess what, folks? They didn't cut trees for paper back then. There were no copiers and there weren't any, you know, you know, uh, office depots or any uh, staple centers around there at that time. Okay, so they literally had to dry animal skin out so they can write on it and produce these letters. And it came from what is known as parchments. What's interesting is because of this city, if you study history, anybody know a man by the name of Mark Antony? He gave this city or this library to his queen, Cleopatra, as a gift. So that's part of history. Why is this important? Because the reason of this is this is in our Bible. This is a real place with real people in a real time setting. So this isn't just something that's just fairy tale or fictional or something that's just out there that, oh, we're just living by blind faith. These are real people with, in real time and real places. So this is important. That's why we study history. There was a worship of four main deities in this city. So there's a lot of pagan worship in Pergamos, just like Smyrna and just like Ephesus, the two other churches that we've studied. And they, they worship Zeus. Uh, they had this big altar we're going to talk about in a second. But the prominent worship for the Pergamenians was the worship of emperor worship. It was emperor worship. And that's where the temple of Augustus is found, which is the first Roman emperor. And guess what? He is actually named in the Bible. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. He is the emperor that sent a decree out for the census of all the land so that Mary and Joseph have to return back to Bethlehem. Okay, so Caesar Augustus, he's a real person. He was a real Caesar. He's actually in the Bible, actually named during the time and the lifespan of Jesus. So remember, Jesus, that was over, this is 96 AD, so that was 60 years ago when Jesus was crucified. And so before that, it was 30 more years. So about 90 years ago, this is when Caesar Augustus lived during that time. And this temple was erected in Pergamum. And we can see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and also in here in this passage of Scripture. So looking at this, we can clearly see in our first point, I'm kind of giving you an idea of visual, where it's located, how this was uh, you know, written by the Apostle John on this tiny island given to these seven messengers. By the way, uh, something I want to mention to you, John did not write the book of Revelation one time and then give it to everybody else. He had to write it seven times and written on these parchments. And what happened is he gave it to seven messengers who were the pastors of those churches who would go back to these seven churches and read the book of Revelation to these churches. That's why, if you notice in verse 12, what does it say? And to the angel, angelos. The word angelos is not referring to a spiritual angelic being, but to a pastor, to an individual who is a messenger. That's what it's referring to within this context. So John is writing to these messengers, and these messengers would go on this postal route, and when they got to their city, the seven men would go around this postal route, and they would stop, and it, whatever if they were pastor of that church. So the first point this morning I want us to grasp is this is a pagan, adulterous, sexual immorality, idolatrous city. This is a city that is immersed in paganism. This is a city that is proud of its pagan worship and its Roman emperor worship. 
just like the church of Smyrna. And this was real during this time. And we're going to find out how real this is because we're going to see a man by the name of Antiochus who was martyred. He was killed for his faith because he wouldn't worship the Roman emperor. That's within our context of this morning. So the first point this morning is the church. We're seeing the church in Pergamos. It's in the city of, of Pergamum, and it is a pagan, idolatrous city. Secondly, the character of Christ. How does Christ introduce himself to this church? If you remember the church of Ephesus, he introduces himself as the one or the son of man that stands in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, meaning his presence is in the church. To the church of Smyrna, he introduces himself as the first and the last, the one who was dead but came to life. In other words, the church that was going to be persecuted and killed for their faith, they didn't have to worry about the second death because Christ uh, defeated death and he would give them eternal life and that hope. This is the first time Christ is going to introduce himself in a negative way to this church. That's important. How does he introduce himself? Notice what he says in verse 12b. These things says he, so John is writing, he is communicating what Jesus is telling him, says he is capitalized, it is Jesus who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's how Christ introduces himself, as a sharp two-edged sword. If someone showed up at your house, knocked on the door, you opened the door, and they had a sharp two-edged sword, what kind of visit do you think you would get? I know we don't carry swords today, but you got to think within the context of these churches at this time that was living. They didn't have guns back then, okay? It's seen as a weapon. It's seen as judgment. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Let's look at verse 15. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ is returning to the earth with the saints, his church, to set up the millennial kingdom. And in verse 15 of chapter 19, notice how John is descriptive writing about who Christ is in his return. Verse 15 says, referring to Jesus, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it, he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he on his robe had on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings and flesh of captains and flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Christ is not coming to be a friend of sinners in his return. He is coming to rule with a rod of iron, and what is going to destroy and strike the nations is this sword, which is the word of God. Why is that important? Back to the Pergamos church. When you compromise with the world, you're one step away from judgment. This is not non-believers. Listen to me. This is not to non-believers. This is to believers. When a believer begins to compromise his position in Christ, he does not lose his salvation but he'll lose his fellowship with God. And God will chastise a believer and he may even chastise him even to death. Read Hebrews chapter 12. Compromisation with the world is one step away from judgment. Christ is introducing himself to this church as having authority over the church. He's not coming to play tiddlywinks. And he's not coming to hug the church. He's coming to judge because the church is compromising in a certain area. So that's important. The Word of God 
listen to me, is absolutely authoritative. The Word of God here within this context with Christ to His church is seen as judge and executioner. You ever took a hot knife or took a knife to hot butter? This is Christ to the church. He knows everything within the church and he knows exactly what is happening and transpiring, and he is going to judge the church if it's not living according to the way that he desires and set the church apart. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite says they are a believer, but they're not living it. And if you think you're tired of hypocrites, Christ doesn't like hypocrites either. And matter of fact, he deals with hypocrites very harshly, and he judges them. So we need to understand how Christ comes to the church. Thirdly, now this is the good thing. The church was doing some good things. He's coming to judge this church, but before he brings his correction to the church, in other words, what the church should do, he tells them what they're doing right. Look at verse 13. We see what the church is doing right. I know your works. Oida, again, the word know, means that Christ is in full, complete understanding, uh, awareness of what the church is doing. It's not gnosko. Gnosko is progressive revelation. In other words, as things progress, you gain knowledge. That's not what this word is. Christ is not constantly gaining knowledge. Christ knows everything, and before you do it, He knows what you're going to do, and therefore He has that knowledge. He has perfect wisdom and knowledge. That's what that means. And so He knows what this church is perfectly doing. And what is that? He says, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and then at the end He says, where Satan dwells. The first thing that this church does very well is their faithful in worship. They're faithful in worship. What do I mean by that? The believers were faithful and courageously maintaining their relationship and faithfulness in the pagan society. In other words, they weren't worshiping other gods. They were worshiping the one true God. This was a church that got it right. This is a church that is saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and they believe in Jesus. They believe He's the only way, and they deny other and all false gods. So they were faithful in worship. How were they faithful in worship? Well, let me give you some ideas what was in Pergamos. There was the altar of Zeus. There is a section here. Look at what it says. It says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What in the world does that mean? Satan's throne. I mean, Satan literally there? If you think about a king and his throne, you think about his presence. In other words, Satan's presence was there. Folks, if you think it's bad in Atlanta or L.A. or New York, it's not. It was bad there. It was a whole lot worse. Pagan worship was everywhere. And I'm not talking about just here and there. It was a part of life. It was a part of society. In their temples, there would be prostitutes. People, orgies outside could see it. Grotesque immorality all over the place was immersed in this society. Satan's presence was there. And many people believe it was Satan's throne. Could it refer to these three altars that I'm about to mention? The first altar is Zeus. This altar of Zeus, listen to how big this was. It was in Pergamos, and it's actually, you can see the ruins, 120 by 112 feet. It was actually in the shape of a horseshoe. And the podium was 18 feet tall. The base of that podium was 446 around and wide. I mean, think about that. That is a huge altar dedicated to Zeus. So some have said that, well, you know, this big altar can refer to the throne of Satan. Some have even suggested, and which is I found very interesting, that ties into America, and you'll see this. The temple, now this is a Greek god, I'm going to try to pronounce his name. This is hard to say. Ecclesbius, I think. X. Excalepius, there we go. It's something like that. I don't know. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But anyways, this Greek god was known as the god of all healing. 
And there was a temple and a shrine erected in Pergamos. And many people believed if they wanted to be healed, guess what was in this temple? And some of you ladies or people are going to cringe. was nothing but snakes. And many people believed if they went to the shrine and the altar of this Greek god, they would lay overnight in this temple and non-poisonous snakes would crawl over them and they would be healed. Clayton, pull up that PowerPoint. I'm not going to show you snakes. People are lying on this, okay? So don't think about that. That is the symbol, a snake around a rod. Go to the next PowerPoint. It's on all ambulances. That is our symbol for medicine here in America. That is the sign that was during this time in Pergamos because it's referring to the God of all healing. Why is this important? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, in verse 9 it tells us, and in verse 10 it also tells us that Satan is the old serpent. So many believe that this temple could literally be, since the sign of Satan represents snakes and serpents, could this be his throne? It could be, I don't know. But there's also another reason, and that is emperor worship. And there was one day out of the year where every citizen was pulled out of their houses by Roman guards, and they had to make an allegiance saying that the emperor was God. This was no choice. You were forced to do this. Imagine yourself in your home in Wrightsville and someone by the, another empire was ruling in the nation of America and they had some colony set up here in Wrightsville and it was their job one day out of the year to go and knock on your door and they asked you a simple question. Do you worship the emperor God or do you worship Jesus Christ? And you had a choice on the spot whether to choose whether you believed or not. Now we know what happened to Antiochus, don't we? Christians were being killed like it was nothing. And that brings up to our next point. They were faithful in worship. Christ is complimenting them. Hey, they're faithful. They're, they're worshiping me. Secondly, he compliments them in their doctrine. They were faithful in their doctrine. Notice what the text says. He says, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. You didn't deny my faith. You didn't deny the faith. You didn't deny the truth of salvation. You held on to the truth of the doctrine of the word of God. The Pergamos church was not ashamed of the name of Christ. They weren't ashamed of him. They held on to the essential truths about salvation and the word of God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 10 what Jesus says to his disciples? If you profess me among men, I'll profess you in front of my father. But if you deny me, I'll deny you in front of my father. Romans 1.16, if you remember the apostle Paul, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The word ashamed means to not be associated with. In other words, the church was willing to associate themselves with Christ and his church in the midst of this pagan culture. They were willing to do that. So Christ compliments them in their worship, in their faith, in their doctrine, and he also compliments them in their persecution, their faithful in persecution. Notice what he says. Continue on verse 13. He says, Antiochus was my faithful martyr who was killed among you when, where Satan dwells. Antiochus. Some translations say my faithful witness. The word martyreo or martus here is where we get the English word martyr. Now get this. There was no word for this Greek word in English, so we had to transliterate it. Transliteration and translation are two different things. Translation is this. There you see a Greek word. You take that Greek word and there's a, an equivalent in the English. But transliteration is... There's the Greek word. There is no word in the English to describe that Greek word, so we have to invent it. The word we invented was martyr. A martyr is someone who is killed for their faith and is unwilling to be removed from their faith, and therefore they're willing to die. That's what a martyr is. So Antiochus 
was willing to die for Christ because he's a faithful witness. So Christ compliments this church. They're faithful in worship. They're faithful in the doctrine and faith. And they're even faithful in the midst of persecution. Some of them probably thrown in prison. Some of them taken away from their families. Probably some of their children were taken and thrown into the army. I don't know. We don't know what they were going through except what is written here within the text. But the point is this. The church faced persecution like you wouldn't have to face. And they remained faithful. Now comes the correction. It's like what we like to say. We bring the good in so we can soften the blow of the bad, right? Here comes the correction. Point number four, the correction. Christ corrects the church in verses 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you. (laughs) I love that. But I have a few things against you. What is that? Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. I want you to notice that. I, I thought this was important. He did not say, because you. He does not say you as a church. He says, but you have in the midst among you in the church those in other words christ is not necessarily judging the churches for their action as they were doing it christ is judging their action because of their association i want you to make that correlation there it's their association have you ever heard the term death by what association Guilt. That's what we're seeing here. What, 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 what is happening here? Notice what he says. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat the things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Two things Christ has against this church. The teaching or the doctrine of Balaam and the teaching and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans found in verse 15. Now, what does Christ have against the teachings of the doctrine of Balaam? Well, here's the interesting thing. I'm not going to cover everything because I believe Brother Ralph did a good job this morning in Sunday school class because guess what? This was the lesson in the Sunday school class of this morning concerning Balaam in Numbers 22 through 25. Christ's concern was some within the church came to believe in the false doctrine of Balaam. Now, who is Balaam? Balaam was a false prophet found in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. There was a Moab king called Balak. Balak hired Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, specifically three times, God blessed the nation of Israel. So Balaam came up with another plot, another idea. If I can't curse them, I'll corrupt them. So how does he do that? Well, one of the things that God said to the nation of Israel was they were not to intermingle with the pagan or other society, heathen societies such as Moab with, by intermingling through marriage with their women. Now, why is that important? Well, because, let me give you some Old Testament history here. God gives the book of Leviticus to the Levites who are the priests of one of the tribes of the nation of Israel. The whole idea about the book of Leviticus is this. It is about being holy and set apart for God. In other words, the nation of Israel was set apart for God and by God so that when the other nations look at Israel, they can see they are being blessed because there's only one God. And if there's only one God, we're going to worship him. In other words, the nation of Israel was supposed to influence all the other nations by not following their pagan rituals and traditions, but following what the book of Leviticus says, be holy for I am holy, set apart, be an example, and influencing the world. But rather than doing that, Balaam came up with the idea, let them intermingle, let them marry, and then they'll worship the other false gods, and God's blessing will no longer be upon the nation of Israel, and therefore, Balak, you can destroy the nation of Israel. What a great plan. If you can't beat them, join them. That was his plan. So what does this have to do with us? 
You see, we, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20, are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador represents someone else on someone else's behalf, and therefore they emulate that individual. For instance, if we have an ambassador of the United States of America and goes to China, he represents the whole nation of the United States of America in that country. We as Christians represent the kingdom of God here on this earth. And we're supposed to impact and influence the world. But unfortunately, like the Pergamos Church, many Christians and many churches today are actually being influenced by the world rather than influencing the world. That's the doctrine of Balaam. He was a stumbling block. He made the nation of Israel trip. And Christ is telling this church, you have a stumbling block in your midst. And that is those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And what is that? That is idolatry, worshiping different gods, and sexual immorality, godless behavior. Those are the two things that he specifically names. In other words, it's not necessarily this church that's committing this uh, grotesque sins. It is that there are individuals who are in the church that are a part of the church and rather than discipline those individuals to repent of their sin, have you ever heard this before? Well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to say anything to them because we might lose them in the church. That is a person who cares more about the appeal and the appraisal of men than the appeal and the appraisal of God. God is not coming for a harlot. The Bible says he's coming for a pure bride, which is his church. And if there's sin in the midst of the church, the church needs to deal with it. We need to deal with it because it's like cancerous cells. If you don't deal with the cancer, it will spread, metastasize, and it will kill the body. Paul warns that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says a little leaven will ruin the whole lump. You better deal with that individual that had committed sexual immorality with his stepmother and not rejoice in it but you better deal with that sin in the church. There is church discipline, but this church would not do it for whatever reason. It doesn't tell us, but they were accepting those who accepted the doctrine of Balaam. Listen to me. False doctrine always produces false behavior. In other words, false belief produces false behavior. The doctrine of Balaam was against God. Not only that, but it was also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, verse 15. I love what Christ says here. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We don't see a lot of things God or Christ say I hate in the Bible, but the things that he does say that I hate, you better hate them too. God says I hate divorce, and he means it. It's not to say that you can't be redeemed or forgiven or that God doesn't love you if you've went through a divorce. It is to say that God does not like the separation of holy matrimony, what he has sanctioned and put together. But God also hates the Nicolaitans, specifically not the people, but their doctrine. I talked about this two weeks ago. If you look at the Ephesian church, you want to listen to that. I'm not going to go into great detail, but the Nicolaitans are associated with the doctrine of Balaam. So therefore, they were the New Testament characterization of the Old Testament character of Balaam. They, they were worshiping other gods or they had their Christian liberty and, well, you know, we're saved by grace and we can do whatever we want to kind of attitude. No, that's not how you live as Christians. You're separated for God. So we see Christ, his characterization. We see the church. We see the compliment he gives to the church. We see him correcting the church. And lastly, the consequence. In other words, you have a choice. You're at the fork of the road. You're doing some good things and you're doing some bad things. Keep doing the good things and stop doing the bad things. And this will be the consequence. But if you continue to do the things that you're doing incorrectly, this will be the consequence. So what are the two consequences? Number one, removed or restored. Removed or restored. Let's look at verse 16. Repent literally means that 
because of uh, change and behavior, changes in your attitude and conduct of life. In other words, do a 180, do a complete roundabout, completely go in the opposite direction. Stop accepting and associating and tolerating false doctrine in your church. Stop accepting that. Repent. If not, notice what he says, or else I will come to you quickly. Not not 150,000 years from now, quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There comes that sword again. Did you catch that transition? I will come to you quickly, and then he says, I will fight them. Who's he talking about here? He's talking to the church, and he's talking about those who are in the church that are false Christians, those that are falsely following this opposition. He's going to fight them with the sword of his mouth. This is judgment upon the church. But verse 17 gives us the restoration or the restored. Look what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the same phrase said to every church, and that is simply to say this. If you have your spiritual antennas, your spiritual ears, if you're picking up what I'm trying to tell you through the Holy Spirit, you better do this because this is real. This is serious. God takes this very seriously. He he doesn't just say something just to say it. He wants a response from his church. They could either do it or not. And if they did not, they would be removed with the sword. The seriousness, therefore, notice what he mentions here. To him who overcomes. In other words, to those who are willing to repent, to those who are willing to turn around, to those who are willing to do it God's way. Notice what he says. I will give some the hidden manna to eat. That's a very interesting phrase. Ties back into Old Testament literature. Ties back into the Old Testament, doesn't it? Remember the children of Israel in the book of Exodus? They were wandering around in the wilderness, right? And what did God bring down from heaven in order for them to be sustained in order to eat? It was manna, which is this honey, wheat, waferish kind of bread-like substance. But Jesus, I love this, in John chapter 6 says, your ancestors, your fathers in the wilderness ate the manna, but they perished. He says, but I'm the bread of life. And if you eat of me, you will not perish. In other words, the manna in the Old Testament could only suffice for so long. But Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, who is eternal life, you eat of him, not physically, but literally means to consume and believe in him, you will have eternal life. And that manna can never be taken from you. But not only that, but another thing that is given to believers, and I will give him a white stone. Now, what is this? There are many speculations what this white stone, but I believe there's only one correct answer. There's the speculation that, you know, on the breastplate of the high priest, there was this kind of, uh, you know, stone that was kind of white and, 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 and its brilliance and like a diamond, it was clear and, and, and revealed the light through it. And therefore, we, we could be seen as part of the nation of Israel and part of the church. There's other speculation, uh, you know, concerning what diamonds look like and things of that nature. But in the context of this time period, there was something important. When someone won an Olympic game, they were given a white stone. On that white stone was their name that was written on it. Now, why is that important? Because that athlete could not get into the emperor's banquet unless they had that white stone. Do you realize in Revelation chapter 19, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb? And you can't get in there unless you have a white robe, unless you have a white stone. And the Bible says you have a new name. That's important. You're no longer going to be identified with your name here on earth. You know why? Because your name here on earth is tainted with sin. Now, don't ask me what this new name is going to be because the context tells us no one knows it except him who receives it. And so you're not going to know until you get this white stone. Nobody knows. 
Nobody knows until this white stone is given to you when you enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Indicating you've won the victory, you fought the good fight, you finished the race, and now this victor stone is given to you with a new name and you may enter the Lord's banquet called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Man, isn't that good? Don't you see that within Scripture? There's so much more here given to believers. It's not just heaven. You're not just in heaven floating around on clouds and playing harps and enjoying life and seeing your old loved ones. You're going to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're going to be part of no longer in sin. You're going to be a part of being in the presence of God with a new name and a new future no longer tainted with sin and the old memories of hurt and the past and sorrow and sickness. No longer have to worry about death or where you get money or how to support your family or yourselves. You'll be in the presence of God. So what's the goal? What's the idea here? What do we need to get from this? It is this. We as the church should not be influenced by the world, but we should be the ones influencing the world. I heard a pastor put it this way. As a pastor at a pastor's conference, he said, it is not our job as pastors to invite the world in. It is our job to bring heaven down. You understand? We as Christians, we can enjoy this life and we can enjoy the things of this life. But when it takes priority over the eternal things, we know that it is a God or it is a stronghold in our life and we need to get rid of it. It could be hunting. It could be a job. It could be work. It could be money. It could be materialistic. It could be entertainment. It could be movies. It could be music. It could be whatever it is in your life that is taking the predominant issue in your life that if you're not making a time to spend with God and His Word and in prayer and reading and, and living out the Word, then you have something that is hindering your relationship with Christ. Don't be like the Pergamist Church. Allow the Word of God to impact you and influence you to change the world and not allow the world to change you. That's the message this morning. You may be doing some things right but you also may be doing some things wrong. And Christ desires for the church to live holy and separate lives so that we can impact the world. As Christ said, a church or a city set upon a hill so that the world can see it. Let your light shine so among men that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. They may see your works. Christ is the light of the world. And if He's living in us, we should be emulating that light to others. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon by Pastor Chris Mitchell with Pleasant Grove Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us on our Facebook page at Pleasant Grove 319.